This is episode 466 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Today, we will look at the last of the four mandates found in 2 Chronicles 7.14, and that is to seek God's face. That's right. We're to seek intimacy with Him, fellowship with Him, and not just seek His hand, hoping for stuff He will give us that we probably really don't need. But it raises just a few questions about seeking God's face, such as, how do we begin the process of seeking His face? What do the scriptures tell us about that? Are there any requirements or things we must first do in order to be ushered into the presence of God? And what is it like to behold the face of God like it talks about in scripture? Is that even possible? I mean, wouldn't I die? And how will that experience of seeking his face change my life? And there is so much to find out here in this passage. So let's jump right in and discover the requirements God places on those who desire to seek his face as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Now we've been talking about Second Chronicles 7.14. Um, I've gone over this the last couple of weeks. There's really no need to go into the background of it again. But again, this has always been kind of the mantra or the recipe for a nation to turn away from the demise in which it's heading and to find its place in God. And there's certain requirements that are laid out. It's like an if-then process. The requirements are for a remnant. It doesn't mean the entire nation has to do this. But a remnant of believers have got to stand against the darkness, and I'm hoping that that will begin among us. Here's what it says. If my people, that's us, but not only just those that claim the name of Christ, but those that are really sold out to him, those that are called by his name, will humble themselves. That's our action. God doesn't humble us like sometimes he humbles a nation. We humble ourselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. If you remember, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, four things that the remnant has to do, that those people who know him and are called by his name have to do, then God will respond by hearing from heaven and forgiving their sin, the, even the national sin, and heal their land. Now, we've already talked about humbling themselves. We've spent a couple weeks talking about praying. We talked about what kind of prayer. Last week, we talked about adding fasting to our prayers. And I hope that some of you considered what we talked about last week and have actually tried to experience some of that this week. And I'll ask you at the end of the message if you have. Today is the most crucial part. And it's seeking God's face, something that we're not taught in church to do, something that our parents usually don't, uh, don't tell us about because maybe they don't do it. We've always learned to seek God's hand, to ask him for things, to get us out of jams, even to bless us or bless other people is still asking him for things. But when we seek his face, it's totally different. And once we do seek his face, then of course, turning from our wicked ways are rather easy. The phrase, seek my face, in Scripture, more than not, refers to seeking God's presence. Now, I want you to think that through, to seek God's 
presence. We see in Scripture what, time, what happens every time a group of people seek God's presence. They're in the wilderness, and all of a sudden God shows up on Mount Sinai, and his big cloud with lightning and thunder and loudness comes down and, and hovers over the mountain, and Moses walks into it, and Moses comes out, and the people are scared to death, just frightened, because that is God that just thought the universe into existence. Or Moses goes into the tabernacle and God comes down and meets with Moses. And when he does, the tabernacle glows so much that when Moses comes outside, he, he has this residual glory of the Lord glowing on him and he has to put this cloak over his face as not to frighten the people. Or on an individual basis, every time we find God showing up in a profound way, even for Godly men like Isaiah or Ezekiel or people of that nature, they fall on their face before the Lord, depart from me, I'm an unclean man. Because whenever we seek God's presence and he shows up in our life, what is revealed the most in us is our unholiness. So most of us, most of the church isn't interested in seeking God's face. We want to seek his favor, we want to seek his hand, we want to seek his blessings, we want to seek his promises, but seeking his presence or his face is something totally different, and it is completely distinguished from seeking his hand. When we seek God's face or his presence, we want all of him. We want to understand everything about him. And once you understand who God is and you've got that intimate relationship with him, then everything else in our life becomes easier. It's easy to trust him. It's our assurance of our salvation, our ability to have faith all increases because we're not looking at individual promises or individual things we've asked him and whether or not he's granted them to us according to our standards, but we know who he is. It's like um, if you're a child, I mean, if you seek your father's face and your father's a good father. I mean, you don't have to worry about anything else. He's going to take care of it. I don't have to lay all my, my promises in front of him and make these deals and bargains, and if you'll do this, I'll do that kind of thing, or he's not going to grant me my wish based on my obedience or my honoring him. Instead, it's just who he is. If we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And in order to be a faith prepper, not the prepper side, but the faith side, an intimate relationship with God beyond what you probably have ever experienced is vital. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what it's talking about in 2 Chronicles 7.14. And that's what is so necessary for us to seek his face. Which, of course, raises questions. Same questions I have, probably same questions you have. How do we do that? And what do the scriptures say about that? Is there some sort of outline or bullet point or a recipe that I can follow to be able to seek his face? And and are there any requirements that are necessary to seek his face? Can I just seek his face anytime? Can I come to him any way that I am? Or is there something that maybe I need to do in order to enter into the holy of holies and encounter a holy God? And in Scripture, where it talks about beholding the face of God like the angels of the little children, I mean, what is that even like? Is it possible? And if I do behold the face of God, won't I die? 
When I just get fried on the spot, isn't that something I want to shy away from and run from? I mean, what is that like? And if you've talked to people who have this over-the-top spiritual life that we have a tendency of wanting to emulate or envy, and you ask them what changed in your life, they will talk about a specific experience. I understood who the Holy Spirit was, and I was filled or baptized by the Holy Spirit, or I met God in a profound way, and he became more to me than just a set of ethics and morals and somebody I understood from just his written word. He became personal. He became intimate. He became not the Lord, but he became my Lord. There's some event where they're seeking the presence of God, and when he encounters them, their lives are forever changed. They pray with power. They manifest his goodness. They, they're literal vessels of him. Is that appealing? Is that something the church wants today? Is that something you want today? If so, it takes some changing. It takes some sacrifice. It takes some conforming our life to be more like him or better than that, allowing the Holy Spirit to move in our life to make us more like him. If you look at these requirements in Second Chronicles 7.14, humble, pray, seek my face, turn from my wicked ways. They're all connected. They're all built on one another. I have humbled myself to the point that I realize that God is sovereign and I am not, that I am not the end of everything, that I can't make all the decisions, that you know what, I'm not always right, and that my very best is not good enough when it comes to God. And so I pray. I pray brokenly. I I pray with passion. I pray earnestly. I pray fervently, effectively, and fervently as a righteous man, asking God to to do something in my life, to to forestall his judgment upon our nation, including my community and my family and my own kids who are part of that. I, I ask God to do that. And in doing that, I'm seeking his face. I want an intimate relationship with you. I want to hear from you every day, every hour, every minute. And in doing so, the natural progression of that is that I will turn from my wicked ways because my wicked ways have no place in the presence of a holy God and are not even worth it to me anymore. I don't even care anymore. And if I, if I don't turn from my wicked ways, then I will grieve the Holy Spirit and not be able to have this presence of him around me. And I'd rather have that more than life. They're all tied together. But seeking his face is really the most important. So I was asking the Lord, give me an example. Show me what's necessary to seek God's face. Show me what's necessary on our part to be able to place ourselves in a position that God willingly and consistently would speak to us and we'd be on his wavelength and his frequency and be able to hear him every time he does. And he led me to Psalm 24. Amazing Psalm, Psalm of David. It begins, of course, the earth is the Lord in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in them. I didn't know this. I started studying about Psalm 24 and some of the other Psalms, but in the Jewish culture from the Mishnah, 
they would take a particular psalm and every day of the week, they would use that psalm as something that they would sing and something that they would study in order to draw closer to God. And this particular psalm is the one they used on Sunday. Now watch this. On Monday, it was Psalm 48. They'd done this for millenniums. Uh, Tuesday, Psalm 82. On Wednesday, Psalm 94. Thursday, Psalm 84. Friday, Psalm 93. On their Sabbath, every Sabbath, the psalm that was read was Psalm 92. And on Sunday, the first day of the week for them, it was Psalm 24. Psalm 24. I want you to think this through. Sunday, Psalm 24. The day of thy triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And during the triumphal entry of Christ, when he is making his way through the eastern gate and the crowd is crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they are throwing down their cloaks and waving palm branches. And Jesus is allowing himself for the only time in his entire ministry to be proclaimed as king. Every time they tried to make him king earlier, he said no. But this time he said, look, if these people don't shout out, that I am king, the rocks and stones themselves will cry this out. This very day that was prophesied in the book of Daniel. On that day, while Jesus was making his triumphal entry, the Jews in the temple were reciting this. Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be, be lifted up, you everlasting door. Why? The king of glory shall come in. Two verses later, lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift up you everlasting doors. The king of glory shall come in. This is a messianic psalm. It can really be divided into three sections. The first section, of course, is a statement about God and his complete ownership of everything. Everything. Second section talks about the conditions and requirements to be able to enter into God's city and to enter into his presence. It's what we're asking to be able to seek his face. What are the requirements? They're right here in Psalm 24. They're also in Psalm 15. And the third part of this, of course, talks about when God comes to his people. And I've just read you two of those verses. It's a messianic psalm that had it all, has its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this as we go through this together. What I want you to do is I want you to pretend like you're doing this at home and you've opened up your Bible, and you want to understand what it says, and so you very slowly, as you're reading through it, kind of emphasize each word. The earth, the earth, that's the inhabited world, that's the globe, that's, that's the earth itself, this planet, this planet that C.S. Lewis called the silent planet. All the other planets and all of the universe cry out for the glory of the Lord except this one. And this one, of course, is stuck in pride and sin and arrogance. And it's this particular planet that God decided, out of all the planets he could have used, this is the planet that he decided to make the battleground between good and evil, between Satan and himself, where the Lord Jesus Christ will be manifest. I was thinking about um, the little town of Waterloo. 1815, of course, at Waterloo, there was this... A uh, battle between the Duke of Wellington and Napoleon when Napoleon's armies were defeated and the, 
trajectory of our entire world changed. Nobody heard of Waterloo prior to that. I mean, it was just a little town that just happened to have the convergings of these two worldviews and these two armies. And from, from that point on, it is known as a, a town where a defining battle took place. Same thing on this earth, this just planet in the middle of our solar system, in the middle of this particular galaxy, in the middle of this particular universe, the earth, and everything else belongs to him. Everything and its fullness and everything on it belongs to him. Good, bad, evil, indifferent. Everything belongs to him. Well, not lost people. Yes, the world and all who dwell in them and those who dwell therein. I mean, even even the people on the media, even people in our government, even people in Hollywood, even some of the world dictators, even some of the most evil people that you know, still God is sovereign. God owns them. God controls them. God will judge them, but God also owns and controls us. Part of this seeking his face is understanding what a good father he is and how our responsibility is just to love him and serve him like a loving child and let him take care of everything that we struggle with and worry about. And, you know, I just, I don't know what this is going to happen. And I've got these goals and, and all this is, Lord, what am I going to do? Why are you fretting over those things? Just trust me. Just abide in me. Just rest in me and let me give you what's necessary to produce fruit and fruit that will last for my Father's glory. John 15, remember? So we reflect on this, this psalm that is talking about how powerful God is and try to figure out, Lord, what are you saying? What are you saying? Verse 2, for God has founded this earth on the seas and he established it on the waters. You can't establish anything on water. Well, what it really means is God brought the land out from from under the water. It was all covered with water and then he had the water recede and land came out. Okay, but what he's talking about here is building something on one of the most unstable elements in in our world right now. Water. You, you can't build anything on water. It sinks to the bottom. It dissolves. But God did all of that. It explains how fragile everything is and how in Hebrews chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus Christ is not only the creator of everything, but also the sustainer that keeps it all together. So, Lord, what are you saying here? So you begin asking some questions and you let your mind begin to to think thoughts that maybe you've never taken the time to allow that to happen. And you're looking at the imagery here and why these words were chosen, why founded, why established. He began it, he initiated it, and he secured it on the seas, rough seas, and then the water, which gives you more of an indication of like a lake or something a little smoother. I mean, what is the Lord trying to reveal to himself or, or reveal to us about himself in this passage? that he is sovereign. And this world that we think is going to last forever is just built on something as fluid and unpredictable as the sea and water. The preamble. So if this is who our God is, and this is what our God has done, he created the earth, 
He owns everything. He, it, th- this energy in us that makes our heart beat, and we don't, science hasn't even defined what that is, what caused it to happen, and, and our heart continues to beat until someday it doesn't anymore. That very energy comes from him. That the very days of our life are numbered before we've lived the very first one, it says in the Old Testament. I mean, this is the God that is the God. It doesn't get any bigger than him. He, he just thought all this stuff into existence that we're just now discovering how vast and big the universe is. Why would you do all that? Because I can? Because it was nothing to me? And you care about us? Yes, so much so that the hairs on your head are not counted, but they're numbered, which means I already knew. How do I have a relationship with someone like that? How do I ever come into the presence of somebody that pure and that righteous and that glorious? Especially when I see these indicators in the Old Testament where where God would reveal himself just a little to people and they just absolutely got wasted, just crushed on the ground, just overwhelmed by their sin, and they were far more righteous than we are. How is that even possible? And if you have a desire... That's the very question, how to seek his face is being answered in Psalm 24. He tells us what the conditions and requirements are for intimacy, for coming into his presence. You think, or many people think, uh, you know, God shouldn't put requirements. Why? Everybody puts requirements. Everybody. If you're working and you have your door closed and somebody who works for you wants to come in and talk to you, do they not at least knock? And you'll say, not now, or you'll say, come in. There's a respect there. And if you were going to meet somebody, a a political figure, or or somebody that that you always were enamored with, maybe a a movie star or a political figure or, or an author or somebody like that, you would dress in your best clothes and you would make sure your teeth are brushed and, and you would present your very best to them. Why? It's out of respect and honor. And we don't think that God many times is the same way. I mean, he only met with Israel once a year in the Holy of Holy between the two outstretched arms of the cherubim on the ark of the, on the ark there. And if you came in at a different time or if you didn't come in properly and didn't go through the ceremonial washings to respect and honor him for who he is, there was a severe price to pay. Ask Moses' sons what happened. We have a tendency of feeling like God the Father is our homeboy. He's just a good buddy. He's just this gummy bear up in the sky that we don't have to obey or follow or even respect or honor, that he saved us and we got to get out a hell-free card. We can do whatever we want, live our lives our way. If we get in a jam, we'll ask him to bless us. And when he puts commands and mandates and requirements in scriptures, we view that as suggestions, the 10 suggestions. Because I don't want to do those things. I'm going to live my own life, and I still want you to bless me. And and, and since in our culture today, we've dealt with hyper grace, and it's all about grace, and all God wants to do is give you his favor and make your life better like some insecure deity that is just dying for your attention, that that's how we view him. And then we wonder why we never have this intimate connection with him, because if we do, our lives would change. 
We would treat our children better. We treat our wives and husbands better. We would be better people if we came in contact with the resplendent glory of the Lord. These are not suggestions. They are commands. And the commands basically point us to the passage that says, you are to be holy. I am holy. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Not the carnal spirit, not the lukewarm spirit, not the lazy spirit, but the Holy Spirit lives in you. And we're not talking about being holy positionally because of Christ. We're talking about being holy right now in our relationship with him and with each other. So here are the requirements. And it begins with a question. And the question is simple. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place. Imagine God as a king with this massive castle and, and it's, the floors are all polished and he's there on his throne and, and you're just a serf, just, just a regular person and you're not related to the king and, and we're able to walk into his palace and all the people are standing at attention and there's great honor and great pomp and circumstance because of the king. Who may ascend, climb up, raise himself up into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? What kind of requirements are for you and I as unholy people to come into the presence of a holy God? Well, first of all, do you want to? Is it worth it? Or are we okay? Are we just kind of okay doing what we're doing right now? You know, I come to church on Sunday and I you know, read my Bible occasionally and I, you know, party when I want and I sleep around when I want and I do what I want and I cheat people when I want, I lie when I want, do all the things that I want to do, but I'm doing my little religious duty here. I'm, I'm coming to mass, I'm, I'm yeah, coming to church, I'm taking communion and, and I'm okay just like I am. It's no big deal. I'm satisfied being lukewarm. I'm not. I'm tired of it. The Lord is tired of it. He says in Revelation chapter 3, which is probably to me, I know I quote it all the time, the most profound visual verse in the New Testament, that those that are just lukewarm, that don't really care, make him nauseous to the point of projectile vomiting this vile stuff out of his body. Gosh, to think that maybe, maybe he might be talking about us. I mean, do I want to ascend to the hill of the Lord? Do I want to stand by him, near him, in his holy place? And if so, what are the requirements? Lord, I'm coming, I'm getting ready to meet with you on Sunday morning. So, Lord, before I meet with you on Sunday morning, tell me what I need to do to prepare myself. Tell me what I need to do to to place myself in in a position that will be pleasing to you. In the parable of, you know, the the ten virgins and the the wedding feast and, and other examples Jesus gave about the wedding, talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, they were given certain clothes that they had to wear. And if you didn't have the clothes that were provided from you, you didn't get in. Because there's a preparation that takes place. It's for honor and respect for someone that we're getting ready to converse with. Verse 24, verse 4. First requirement, verse. 
powerful verse. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What does that even mean? Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. What, like Buddha? Okay, I haven't done that. I'm okay there. Nor sworn deceitfully. I mean, if you look at this verse, there's several things that he's listed here, and it's a picture of someone who has God in the center of every aspect of his life. He who has clean hands, that is outward holiness. That is someone who, when you look on the outside of them, when you look at their actions, the words that they say, the things that they do, the things they align their self up with, the posts that they put on Facebook, the type of jobs that they have, the words that come out of their mouth, the entertainment that they take in, that there's an element of being different. There's a holiness about them. Clean hands is this outward holiness. Void of sin. Matter of fact, it's a requirement to be a leader in a church. That someone needs to be above reproach. To have a good reputation, not only within the church, but also outside of the church. So the people who really know him know he has a good reputation. And the people out there who he deals with in a secular world also know he has impeccable character. Because it's his element of outward holiness. It's someone who confesses their sins. No matter how small they may be in our eyes. They renounce, they renounce their sins and they continually and completely try to eradicate sin from their life. They practice spiritual breathing, ask the Holy Spirit to fill them on a continual basis because our hands are stained with a lifetime of sin. And yet God says we have to come to him with clean hands. Now, there's an element of that that only God can do. But there's also the sanctification part that is left up to us. Again, Lord, if there's anything standing in the way of me and where you want me to be, a deeper relationship with you, Lord, I've washed my hands the best I know, but if my hands are still stained, will you reveal those to me and I will address those and deal with those immediately. He will reveal those things to you. And if you've spent some time trying to live a holy life, what he will reveal to you are those areas that you're holding on really tight. And then it's okay. There they are. You asked what is necessary to have a deeper relationship with me. You need to do this and quit doing that. And it is hard and it is painful. And it will cost you something because otherwise we would have already given it to him, but instead we're still holding it on, holding on to it. Our own mindsets, our fear of of the Holy Spirit, our not desiring to trust him, our ability to seek revenge, whatever it is. He who has clean hands, which is, of course, outward holiness, but outward holiness is not enough. Because it's not only outward holiness, but it's also a pure heart. And a pure heart deals with inward holiness. Inward holiness. So how does that even work? What is, what do you mean by inward holiness? How in the world can I have a pure heart? And what is the benefit of having a pure heart? It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's when Jesus was beginning to tell everybody what life was like in his kingdom. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall have an intimate relationship with me. They shall seek my face. They shall seek my 
presence. I will reveal myself to them because I am holy and they need to be holy. And he's given us his Holy Spirit that'll make us holy positionally, but it will also allow us to be holy in practical application in our everyday life if we simply have a desire and want that to take place. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He who has clean hands and a pure heart can enter into my presence. Now, there's this difference between outward holiness and inward holiness. And you need to understand that outward holiness without inward holiness makes you a Pharisee. It makes you a judgmental Pharisee. That my heart is deceitfully wicked, but I've gained victory over this area of my life, maybe in the flesh, and so therefore I'm going to lord it over everyone else. It begins with inward holiness and it manifests itself outwardly. And the whole first chapter, first two chapters of the Sermon on the Mount dealt with the difference between outward holiness and inward holiness. The Jews focused on outward holiness and Jesus says, no, it's more important to be inwardly holy first. Look what he said here. We'll begin in Matthew chapter five. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, outward act, outward holiness, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, do you remember the rest of that? Don't even be angry. That's inward. It's not just I can be as angry as I want and seethe and and hate somebody, but as long as I don't kill them, I'm okay. doesn't work that way. It's outward holiness and inward holiness. Matthew chapter 7 I mean, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 28, a few verses later. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, it's inward. Don't even lust. Don't even look at a woman to think impure thoughts about her. Because if you have, you've already committed adultery, even though outwardly you're still faithful to your spouse, but you watch porn in your bedroom late at night. Really? Yeah. Outward versus inward. A couple verses later. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Here it is. You've offended me. You're gone. But I say to you, and then he puts requirements on the heart of a man when it comes to the relationship with his wife. Again, you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oath to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all. That's your yes be yes and your no be no. I mean, let your word be your bond. See the difference? A couple verses later, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't seek revenge like that. Let God take care of all that. Inward and outward holiness. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love those who persecute you and despise you and do things that are evil to you. Why? Summary at the end of chapter 5. Because you need to be perfect, complete, and whole. How much? To what degree? Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And just so that you'll know that Jesus wasn't lifting some standard that's impossible for us to meet, Peter reiterates the same thing. But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Why? 
Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. There's an outward holiness and an inward holiness. And that's what it's talking about here. Clean hands and a pure heart. Third requirement is you've not lifted up your soul to an idol. I don't even know what that means. What a strange phrase. I know what idol means. When we think of idols, we think of an Indian totem pole, or we think of Buddha, or we think of some shrine somewhere. I don't do any of that kind of stuff, Lord, because that's how I define idols today. And when it talks about lifting up your soul, I don't even know what that means. We don't use that phrase in our vernacular today. So what, what does it mean? Lifting up your soul means to trust or place faith in something. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not place his faith or his trust in an idol. Well, how do you know that's what it means? Well, there's a bunch of verses, but if you'll just look at the next chapter in the first two verses, that's exactly how it's used. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. So it's what we're talking about. Lifting up your soul means to trust in something. He who has clean hands and a pure heart has not lifted up his soul to an idol. And an idol is not necessarily something made of stone or wood. An idol is anything in your life that takes the place of God. It could be your spouse. It could be your children. It could be your home. It could be your job. It could be you and your desire for gratification, feeling good. It could be money. It could be fame or fortune or notoriety or respect. It could be a thousand different things. And anything in your life that takes the place of God is an idol. Someone that has clean hands and a pure heart and doesn't place their trust in themselves, in their spouse, in fame or fortune of this world, doesn't become a friend of this world. This is what he's looking for and people that only trust him to prepare themselves to enter into his presence and receive this intimacy from him. If you look at the context, it's something that we do. Clean hands and pure hearts, okay. But I have a choice now whether I'm going to lift my soul, the, the seat of my mind, will, heart, em- volition, and emotion up to something that is contrary or opposite or in place of God. Lord, am I doing that? Well, let's ask a couple questions. Do the things of the world bring joy to you? Kind of. I mean, I like nice things. Nobody, if they had a choice, especially in America, wants to live in a one-bedroom apartment in a slum when you can live in a 5,000-square-foot house in a really nice area. Agreed? I mean, anybody who would choose that is strange or wrong or, or something of that nature. And, you know, we rather have, we'd rather eat at Ruth Christ than Taco Bell, and we, we like nicer things, and, and we want to dress nice, we want to look nice, we want, yeah, I, things of the world bring me joy. If they didn't, I wouldn't spend all my time or a vast majority of my time trying to acquire them. And once I get them, try to hold on to them and not let anybody else have them. But do they satisfy? I will tell you no, because that's the Christian answer. But if you look at my life, 
I spend 10 or 12 hours a day trying to acquire the things of the world, far more than I need, and very little time, if I have time at all, spending time with you, God, so I guess I am more satisfied with the things of the world than I am satisfied with you. Again, just look at the time of what we talk about when we're together. So are my treasures in heaven or are my treasures here on earth or am I one of those guys who's just torn between the two? The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I, I don't want to do, I do. Who, what a wretched man that I am. It's really hard in our country when everything is about money and possession and trinkets and toys that, uh, to realize that in many people's lives, they become idols because we spend more time worrying about them than we do anything else. Tuesday, I was talking about total commitment, and I was dealing with the, again, these are all these messages that are designed to build up our faith as we see very tough times coming. But what I was talking about was John the Baptist when he saw Jesus. And John the Baptist sees Jesus, and there, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is after, of course, he baptized him, heaven opened up, after Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. The next day, standing with two of his disciples, and he sees Jesus, and there's the behold, the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples decided to leave John and committed themselves to Christ. But John still had other disciples, and they stayed with him. How can you stay with John when John is pointing to Jesus? And how can John allow that to happen? It raised a whole lot of questions about those that just go halfway, those that are content with being sold out and leaving my family and giving up my hobbies because I want to follow John the Baptist, but then going one step deeper into the unknown and following the Lord Jesus Christ wherever he will take us. And I, I listed three quotes from great Christians of the past that I want to share with those here that weren't there on Tuesday. The first one is from Henry Blackaby. He's still alive. He's in his 80s. He's the one that wrote Experiencing God, if you've ever been through it, a profoundly spiritual man. And here's what he says. Jesus taught that your highest priority must be your relationship with him, exactly what we're talking about him, seeking his face. If anything, good, staying with John the Baptist, uh, staying with John the Baptist, are bad, just not going anywhere, detracts you from the relationship you have with Christ. That activity is not from God. The highest priority must be a relationship with him. If your husband, listen carefully, this hurts, your children, your job, or yourself detracts from your relationship with God. As good as those things are, the example that Justice gave today, my wives and my kids, that I married from pagan nations, but they're still my wives and my kids. In the book of Ezra, if they detract from my relationship with God, it, they're not from God, even though I love them more than anything and I'm addicted to them, you let them go. If anything detracts you from that relationship, that activity is not from God. God will not ask you to do something that hinders your relationship with Christ ever, ever, because that is the highest priority as a believer. Oswald Chambers, if I'm going to know who Jesus is, I must obey him. 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, he says, and not do the things I tell you to do? The majority of us don't know Jesus, as I'm talking about here, on an intimate, personal way, because we have not the remotest intention of obeying him. We will obey him in areas we don't care about. But when God begins, when his word begins to shine in the areas we refuse to budge on, we have no intention of obeying him. And then we wonder why we don't know him like we can. A.W. Tozer. What's closest to your heart is what you talk about. And if God is close to your heart, you'll talk about him. I want you to think about every conversation that you've had this last week. The hundreds of conversations you had. You had them at work. You had them with friends. You talked on the telephone. You sent emails. You text people. You had them with your spouse and your kids. Of the hundreds of conversations that you had this week, how many of those conversations centered around God? Or how many times did you introduce or interject God into a conversation that maybe even was work-related? We don't. And according to A.W. Tozer, it's because he's not close to our heart. These other things are, and then we'll deal with God later. If we want to have the ability, the promise here, the answer the questions, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place, he lays out for us requirements. And if it's worth it to us, then we'll do it. If it's not, then we'll continue limping on like we have. Clean hands, pure hearts, Someone who has not lifted up his soul to an idol or someone who has not sworn deceitfully. Good night. Do we ever live in a society of liars? Everybody lies. Government officials lie, and they don't even care. The media lies. Institutions lie. Hollywood lies. You and I basically have a tendency of lying to get the things that we want. And they're little white lies. Little white lies are not that bad. We kind of stretch the truth a little bit. It's just part of life. We lie because we want a job. We tell them things that maybe aren't totally true. We, we, we leave some things off our resumes or we heighten some things on our resumes that, that don't really represent who we are. Sometimes we lie to each other in church just in order for other people to think we're godly. Hey, anybody read their Bible today? I did. Really? Well, where, where did you, where'd you uh, read? Uh, you know, it was in the New Testament somewhere. Philippians. It was in Philippians. I, I, read, I read in Philippians. Yeah, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. But it's politically incorrect not to say that, and we want other people to think, no, I didn't devote my whole week to my job or my work or building my business. I actually did spend some time with God because that's kind of socially accepted. And we lie. We lie to make a sale. We lie to make money. We lie to make other people feel good. We lie to make ourselves feel good. I mean, it's just part of our culture. Who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. Psalm 24 is pretty much just a shortened version of Psalm 15. Psalm 15 lays out in a little more detail these very same requirements. And again, it's talking about having that intimate relationship with the Lord. I'm just going to read this to you. Psalm 15. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill? Same questions. Who may abide in where you're at with your presence? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness. 
not only do I, am I walking blamelessly, but I'm doing things that manifest your righteousness. And who speaks the truth in his heart, not swearing deceitfully. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against a friend. You violated my rights. You've done something that irritated me. I'm, I'm against you. In whose eyes a vile person is despised and not honored, we have a tendency of following on Twitter and Facebook and, I don't know, Instagram and Facebook, people who have achieved certain levels that we want in the secular world, and they are vile people, and yet we follow them. We don't despise them. You know, Rhett and Link, uh, kids love Rhett and Link. Grandkids love Rhett and Link. You know who Rhett and Link are? And it's these two guys that do this little daily show, and it's they're hilarious and do kind of funny things, and we followed them for years, even when they first started out on YouTube, until all of a sudden they decided to deconstruct their faith and they're no longer a believer in Jesus Christ, which is fine. But they've made it their passion now to make sure you're no longer a believer in Jesus Christ too. And so they've actively gone and decided they want to destroy everybody else's faith so that you can be like they are. What, I'm not watching them anymore. I mean, why? Again, they're still funny. They still do the same stuff they've always done, but they place themselves in a position where they are despised and vile now because they're, but they're still funny. It doesn't matter. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. So what do we, this person does? He honors those who fear the Lord, even though they're not as funny. I'm going to give my money to those guys rather than these guys. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who, I'll give you a small example. Almost, not every time, but almost every time we've had someone come work on our house, build the deck or something of that nature, we enter into a contract and the contract is that this is how much it will cost, and I will give certain draws, and they'll come up to me on Friday and say, hey, can I get a draw? Sure. You know, how much do you need? I need 3000 bucks. And so, okay, so you, whatever it is to do the house. Almost, not all the time, almost every time I've done that, the draws have run out before the work was done. In other words, um, especially with our deck, for example, the guy, he just needed too much money, and all of a sudden he realized that, all, that I've already paid him all the money that he was supposed to get paid for doing the deck, but the deck wasn't finished, and I got another two weeks' work left on the deck, and so I'm going to have to work for nothing, and so I'm walking off the job. I'm not going to do it anymore, because that's just what our culture does. But not, not this kind of man. This kind of man swears to his own hurt. I made an agreement, and I agreed to sell it to you for, for $25, but the price has dropped, and I'm losing money now. But if I've made an agreement, then I'm willing to go through with that because I'm a man of integrity, and it's only money. And when it comes to money, this guy doesn't loan money to people. He gives money to people. He doesn't put out his money at usury. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. As a matter of fact, there's promises in Psalm 24 for those people who have this kind of attitude. And here are the promises. He shall receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah, or sit back and reflect and understand that this isn't true. 
The idea of Jacob is here is the fact that Jacob was, I will not let you go, God, until you bless me. Do you remember? And then God did bless him, and he limped for the rest of his life, but it was worth it. It was a sign of my encounter with God. And then, of course, the end of this passage talking about his coming. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. The king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting door, and the king of glory shall come in and fellowship and have communion with you. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. To seek his face. It means a radical transformation of pretty much how we are and what we do. You know, Lord, I've gotten victory over many areas in my life, but there's still these areas that I hold on to. Well, those are the areas that he will direct his light of the Holy Spirit to have you address and have you deal with those. And if you change, then he reveals more of himself to you. If you choose not to change, then I guess we're okay just like we are. And if we're okay just like we are, then why are we praying for God to move in a mighty way and saved our lost loved ones when we have no more power to our prayer than we had yesterday? The idea is if we want something to change, we've got to change. So how do I seek his face? Well, it really boils down to desire. How bad do you want it? I mean, how bad do you want it? I know that, um, you know, We'll ask people to do things in church. Hey, would you like to uh, teach on Wednesday? Oh, I, I, I can't. Why? Well, I, I just got no time. I'm just really swamped. I mean, it's really kind of, kind of amazing. I mean, I have to work all this time. Okay, all right, I got that. No big deal. But then if that same person decides that they want to get an advanced degree in the, in the profession that they're in, they'll go back to school at night school. They'll stay up to 2 o'clock in the morning studying Books this thick because it's something they want to do. I've got to get it done because it's something I've committed to. I paid my money to it. It's going to benefit me in real time. But then they don't have time for the things of God. I'm not saying don't get advanced degrees, but there needs to be a consistency between what is temporal and what is eternal. It all boils down to desire. When I... um, when I wrote Love, Jesus, Hate Church many years ago, which is kind of therapeutic for me, uh, one of the chapters was called People Do What They Want to Do, and people don't do what they don't want to do. It's like the, the 32nd and 33rd proverb. It's, you know, we do what we want to do. And what God has laid out for us is this amazing ability to have an intimate relationship with him unlike anything we've ever experienced before. And there's certain things that he wants to do in our life to prepare us to be able to come to that wedding feast or have that audience with the king. And if we want to do it, we will. And if we don't, we won't. But why would we not want to have a face-to-face encounter with God Almighty? Amen? And it all boils down to desire. I'm going to close with this, Psalm 63, first three verses. Oh God, you are my God. Really? If you were my God, what would I do? Early will I seek you. Man, I'll get up early. First thing, 
highest priority. I want to seek you. I mean, we wake up in the morning and the first thing we do is greet our spouse, say hi to our kids. We do that before anything else because you know, that's important to me. I want them to know I love them and, and you know, I want to spend time with them because those relationships are far more important than just my work relationship. Early, early, early will I seek you. You know why? Because my soul, my heart, my will and my volition, my mind, my feelings, they thirst for you. Not, not just long for you, but they thirst like, like, I'm, like I, I have to have a drink of you. I'm absolutely parched. Well, how much do you thirst? Like if I was in a dry, thirsty land where there's no water. I thirst for you like if I'm stuck in the desert and it's been three days and there's no water and that's all I care about. I don't care about my house. I don't care about my money. You can have everything I have if you'll just give me a drink of water because without water, I'm going to die. Everything that I've held on to means nothing if I could just have this craving. That's the kind of relationship that God wants us to have that you can have if you'll just meet with him deeper than maybe you have in the past. So Lord, since you're the most important thing in my life, I have looked for you in the sanctuary, in the dwelling place of where you are. I want to see your power and your glory. Do you know why? Because your grace And your loving kindness is better than life. It's better than breath. It's better than all my possessions. It's better than the 80 years I live on this earth. It's better than anything. And my lips will praise you because you're the only thing worthy of praise. Second Chronicles 714. Put your name here. If Steve who is called by my name, will humble himself. And if Steve will pray, and if Steve will seek my face and all that's involved, and if Steve will turn from his wicked ways, then I will hear his prayer from heaven. I will forgive his sin. And on behalf of Steve, I will heal the land in which he lives. Do you believe that's true? then we have the power to move God's hand against a wicked nation that is heading down to the abyss and is going to drag down to the abyss our grandchildren and our children and our loved ones. The collateral damage will be probably horrific. It always is. And we have an ability to have the kind of relationship that he hears our prayers and will move in an incredible way. And I've been preaching on this for several weeks now. And if your prayers are not like this now, we've wasted another week that we're not going to get back. There's a finite number of days that we have left. And we cannot afford for the sake of ourselves and our sake of our loved ones to waste anymore. So I pray and I beg you, to become this kind of believer, that when you pray, God moves. Amen? Let me pray.